Hello everybody, welcome to a new episode of The Dissenter. I'm your host as always, Ricardo Lopes, and today I'm joined by Dr. Ursula Goodenough. She's a professor of biology emerita at Washington University in St. Louis, where she engaged in research on eukaryotic algae. She has presented the paradigm of religious naturalism and the epic of evolution in numerous venues around the world. She currently serves as president of the Religious Nationalist Association. She is a member of the National Academy of Sciences, and today we're going to focus on her book, The Sacred Depths of Nature, How Life Has Emerged and Evolved. And we're talking mostly about the second edition, which has just come out this year. So, Dr. Goodenough, welcome to the show. It's an honor to everyone. It's an honor to be here. Right. So, I mean, of course, in your book, you cover a lot of ground related to uh, basically the origins of everything in the universe and also particularly uh, life and the evolution of life. So let's get into some of the big questions and then also tackle uh, religious naturalism, what it is really and how this paradigm applies to perhaps how we should think about some of these questions. So, uh, I mean, do you think that when it comes to thinking about the origins of the universe and the Earth specifically, uh, the why question applies here? I mean, do you think that uh, from a scientific perspective, we should question why the universe and the Earth exist? Well, we're certainly... <clears throat> free to ask the question, uh, to my knowledge, there's no answer. And so uh, asking the question raises, you know, philosophical and existential uh, questions that people have offered many answers to, um, not scientific, however, I would say, but more philosophical or religious, so that God did it or uh, something like that, or that there are, uh, but as you may remember uh, from my book, what I do is kind of basically punt the question and say that nature just is, that it happened. Um, we have some accounts of what happened uh, at the beginning, but we don't have any answers to the why question that at least satisfy me. And so instead of uh, paying a lot of attention and time to that, I have adopted what I call a covenant with mystery, where I say that if there are certain things that we don't have answers to and may never have answers to, and instead of getting worked up about that, to just go ahead and live within this mystery as part of our lives. And um, this is, of course, a tradition that one finds in a lot of the East Asian perspectives as well, that there are things that we just don't know and um, that we live within that. So it's basically adopting or accepting a sense of mystery surrounding why is all of this here, why we are here and questions of that sort. Right? That's where I've come out, yeah. Uh, but uh, do you think it uh, matters uh, if there's an answer to the question if 
any of these has any purpose because that's somewhat different from why we're here, why the universe is here. I mean, does it matter if there's any purpose to all of these or not? Well, if we were to find a cause uh, that suggested a purpose, then obviously we would need to pay a lot of attention to that. But since that hasn't yet emerged to my knowledge, um, we can wait and <laughs> meanwhile live without such such an answer. I mean, humans are, we have what I've called at some point, uh, we have causal operators. If something happens, we want to know the cause of it. And we seek that and, uh, you know, moment by moment, why did I hear that noise? Why did my stomach growl? Why, you know, uh, we're, we do that. And if we can't figure out the answer directly, we usually form a hypothesis. Well, maybe it was the meal I had last night. Well, maybe, uh, you know, we come up with scenarios and test them out. That's just what we do. And we, of course, this is the basis of our scientific mode of inquiry as well. Mm -hmm. um, so why is there anything at all rather than nothing is obviously a question to be answered. Um, but that comes, I think, from the way our minds work. <laughs> Uh, and since, of course, uh, you are a biologist, uh, what do we know about the origins of life and uh, in what ways does that question uh, or might that question relate to some more existential questions? Well, it doesn't lead to any for me because it's clear that once the earth cooled down about that billion years after it formed um, there were plenty of places and opportunities for chemistry to take place uh, carbon-based chemistry which is the kind of chemistry that we find in modern life mm -hmm. so since we have modern life we can extrapolate back and um, posit and model and think about how the first kinds of chemical reactions might have arisen that would have a self-perpetuating mode and therefore be something that could be the basis of the original life forms. And once you get such an original life form that does self-maintain, that does self-produce and reproduce, then that is the origin of life formally, uh, that particular life form, one would imagine, would then evolve so that it would reproduce more successfully than one that had not yet um, undergone such an evolutionary change. And eventually you get to what we call the last universal common ancestor, which is the uh, life form that gave rise to all modern creatures. And our extrapolations back to that last universal common ancestor, maybe three billion years ago, uh, those are quite sophisticated because we can look at all of the chemical reactions that we find in modern life and um, say ones that are shared and say since they're all shared, they probably go back to an original uh, version. Uh, but at this point in time, when it comes to the very origins of life, there are several different accounts out there. Like, for example, some people posit that 
uh, an RNA world hypothesis where RNA came first. Some other people uh, suggest that metabolism came first. Uh, I mean, do you think that, uh, or as a biologist, how, how do you look at that kind of issue? Do you think uh, there's good enough evidence at this point in time to tell if, for example, the RNA world hypothesis is better than the metabolism first hypothesis or vice versa? And in the context of the framework you bring to your book, does answering uh, or, or does having a definite answer to that question really matter that much? Well, uh, it should be nice to know the answer. It, it's very likely that we won't, however, just because whatever the first life form and its immediate ancestors, uh, I mean, immediate progeny were, uh, have long since disappeared. And yeah. so um, it will always be the nature of a hypothesis. And as you know from reading my book, I come down um, favoring the metabolism first just because it makes more sense to me um, than the idea that you have information and then somehow it figures out, I mean, you have a coding mechanism like RNA and then it figures out how to encode metabolic processes, it seems more straightforward to me that metabolic processes first evolved and we can imagine uh, how those happen via autocatalytic cycles and so on and then posit that something like RNA came along that was able to encode these ideas. So that's just a more straightforward scenario for me and that's what I present. So, uh, and when studying biochemistry, for example, and understanding how it works and how it evolved, could you tell us what role does the concept of emergence plays here? Because in our modern scientific world, we hear a lot about reduction and reductionism and reductionist approaches. So. Uh, what, uh, how do you look at emergence and what do you think is the role it plays here? Okay, well, in order to even see uh, something emerging, it really is, to my mind, necessary that one first reduces because one needs mm -hmm. to find mm -hmm. out who the participants are because emergence essentially uh, occurs uh, via relationship between entities. And so if you don't know what the entities are, it's a little hard to talk about how their relationship generates an emergent property or an emergent dynamic. So I see the process not only of scientific inquiry, but any kind of human inquiry as uh, first reducing, asking what it is that we're talking about, who are the players in the movie, if you will, and then once you figure that out, then you can start studying their relationships and their interactions and their modifications of each other and so on, from which um, are generated emergent properties, which is something else than these nothing buts. So both activities are essential to an understanding, to my mind. Mm -hmm. And what about uh, the concept of the self? Because that's something that, for example, psychologists talk a lot about, but 
what is the self from the perspective of uh, of evolutionary biology? So I would say, and I'm following uh, the work of Terry Deacon at, at mm -hmm. Berkeley um, carefully in this regard. He's one of my mentors, and um, he proposed this, and therefore I propose that any living organism um, that is self-maintaining and self-replicating, uh, I just use the word self, right? There is a self that is being maintained, is being repaired. That self, that entity that uh, has these properties is, I would say, a feature of all living organisms, both those on the planet today and the very first ones. The psychologists, when they're talking about self, are usually talking about the human concept of their self. And mm -hmm. this, I think, is perhaps unique to humans or perhaps um, uh, seen in some very uh, large-brained mammals. But it isn't necessary to know that you're a self in order to be a self. <laughs> Oh, yeah, that, that's a very interesting point, because uh, at least when we think about the self from our sort of more perhaps Western understanding of it, we usually associate it with something uh, psychologically conscious most of the time, I guess, and uh, sort of related to our own identity as people, but that's not really what you're referring to there, correct? Absolutely not. No, I, I, in fact, I, I give the human version of the self, I call it an I self, um, capital mm -hmm. I, hyphen self, because there's a sense of the I, there's a sense of Ricardo, there's a sense of Ursula, and the falls asleep at night and wakes up in the morning and has an autobiography, and uh, that uh, sense, I posit, I, I, I believe, uh, derives from our use of symbolic language. So we have language and therefore concepts, and um, we st store these ideas in our memories, and that out of that emerges this I-self, um, which feels immaterial. It feels like uh, it doesn't have anything to do with the brain because uh, we can't because it's emergent from the brain and emergent properties usually mask the nothing buts um, but to my mind even though we don't yet understand how it works the brain is uh, definitely involved via our symbolic language gift uh, to create and generate and sustain this I self this sense of of being uh, being a being, <laughs> whereas right. my cat is a being and she's conscious and she figures everything out and she remembers stuff, but she doesn't use language to do that. And I have no reason to think that she <clears throat> has such a self-concept, con nor does she need one. I mean, arguably, we don't need one either, but uh, we have one. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, and I would imagine that at least in the case of us humans, the psychological self would also be the result of a sort of socio-cultural process. That is the way we relate to other people and also the, the kind of notion of the self that we, are, that we get from our own 
a cultural background as well. Absolutely. So the, to my mind, culture and the evolution of language go together. That once mm -hmm. there's a language uh, that allows us to tell stories um, and of this happened and then that happened and then that happened. And once we have stories, these stories um, are told to our children and they tell them to their children. And that is what culture is and that's how culture evolves. And it happens, this evolution of culture, of course, occurs immeasurably more rapidly than the evolution, biological evolution, which is very slow. But uh, the culture that each child finds her or herself in is very much involved in the construction of the I-self that that um, child engages in. Mm -hmm. So that's about the self, but from a more uh, biological perspective and not talking about the self necessarily now, but what is an organism? Well, I... I, I use the word or the noun organism as a synonym for a living being. Um, and then what's being alive is what we just talked about. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, it, it's just another term for that. But certainly all the living beings on the planet today, we would call organisms. And I would have no trouble calling the first life form an organism. Um, it's, it's a useful word. Yeah. And how does evolution work and when exactly? Of course, uh, we don't know exactly, but what do you think were the necessary ingredients for it to have started? Well, once, once you have instructions, once you have an RNA kind of template mm -hmm. that <clears throat> encodes features of the organism, features of the self, then how evolution works is pretty obvious. If you change the instructions, you change what uh, emerges. And um, most of those, assuming that those changes happen by chance and not by some theistic uh, intervention, then those uh, changes in the instructions we know by, from countless experiments in the laboratory where we can change the instructions ourselves and then see what happens. Um, what usually happens if we just change the instructions randomly is that the organism doesn't work as well as it used to. Um, sometimes it works the same way, a neutral change, and sometimes it gives the organism an advantage in the environment in which it finds itself, in which case we call it positive evolution. But the important thing to remember is that all of these evolutionary trajectories occur in a context, occur in the world, uh, in the environment, in the ecosystem, uh, with relation, <clears throat> organisms' relationships to critters of their own kind and critters of different kinds. And so evolution occurs contextually, it's not just something that happens uh, off in space somewhere. And uh, once evolution starts and uh, species diversify, I mean, how, how do we get biodiversity? How is it uh, generated? Well, because 
there are so many environmental parameters on our planet. Um, what we just said generates biodiversity. Um, if our planet were completely homogeneous and one temperature and one one uh, source of water and one everything, we'd probably only have one species um, that would hone in and be perfect for that environment. But that's not the case. So um, instead, there are lots of different trajectories that have been followed, gazillions of them. And, and uh, talking about the big step or one of the big steps in evolutionary history, do we know how multicellular organisms evolved? I mean, why is it that at a certain point in evolution, uh, what were before unicellular organisms started uh, basically getting together and establishing this sort of um, mutualist relationship, I guess. I, I don't know if that's the correct word to use here, but uh, where do multicellular organisms come from? Well, the last estimate I heard is that multicellularity has evolved at least 20 times independently. So okay. it wasn't one, <clears throat> one event. Mm -hmm. And so the seaweeds, for example, uh, are multicellular. Um, mm -hmm. it's, uh, and that occurs differently than it occurs in land plants and animals. And fungi can also be multicellular um, and so on. So the multicellular organisms that we're most familiar with and arguably most interested in are the land plants and the animals. And mm. uh, in both cases, they came up with apparently independently the concept of an embryo. Um, that So the embryo then derives from sex. So all of these organisms are sexual, as indeed are the seaweeds. But the... Uh, embryo derives from a fertilized egg, which then cleaves and the cells differentiate and form either a larva or the full organism. Um, and that we know when that happened because such organisms leave fossil records. And it just, there are very simple versions of it in sponges and so on. So it looks like it was just an idea that showed up at some point and was a good one in that particular context and started to evolve in that context. And that happened independently in, in the animal and in the land plant lineages. But do, do multicellular organisms from a biological perspective have uh, some advantages over unicellular organisms? I'm asking you this also because I would imagine that for the first uh, multicellular organisms to evolve uh, different uh, unicellular organisms had to have come together and since they didn't share at least initially the same genetic material couldn't there be some issues in terms of uh, some sort of genetic conflict or something like that okay so first of all it's a much better idea if you, uh, if your scorecard is how many organisms there are to be unicellular. Yeah. So there are more bacteria in a 
teaspoonful of soil than there are humans on the planet. So, mm. um, you know, no question being multicellular is not the best idea if you're trying to make a lot of a different kind of organism. Mm-hmm. Um, the uh, multicellularity, I, I, I heard in what you just said, and maybe you didn't mean this, but some a lot of people think that multicellularity happened because two different kinds of unicellular organisms kind of fused together to form a two <laughs> a two part one, uh, and it's very unlikely, as you said, that that's the way it happened um, because their genetic information is so different that uh, coming together like that um, would create a multicellular organism. There, it's very. I think at this point, well established that something like that happened at an important juncture in the evolution of life in that um, archaeal cells um, acquired a bacterial cell. The bacterial cell then gave a lot of its genes to the archaeal genome and the bacterium itself became a mitochondrion with just a few genes. So Mm -hmm. there are examples where that has happened. But I think what happened in the case of land plants and animals was more that you had a zygote which and you can form a zygote as a unicell as well there's lots of sex in unicellular algae uh, in unicellular organisms including algae which I studied and that that zygote instead of just undergoing meiosis and making more unicells uh, cleaved into two cells that stayed together and then into four that stayed together that's kind of what seaweeds do. They just make a great big frond of uh, cells that are pretty much alike, except for the mm-hmm. sexual. And in the case of animals and plants, those cells started to switch on different genetic programs and become leaves and livers and um, the other organs that we associate with being unis- multicellular. So multicellular is something that happened. It's obviously done very well. Uh, but to repeat, it's not the winning strategy if you mm-hmm. want to uh, make a lot of yourself. Mm-hmm. Uh, and why did uh, sex evolve? Uh, because aren't there some disadvantages in sexual reproduction compared to asexual reproduction? Well, there's certainly disadvantages in that you have to find a mate and you have to... Uh, uh, half of your genome in the form, during the course of meiosis is not included in the next generation. Um, but it's obviously been a very successful strategy, not the only one, bacteria don't use it. Um, but what it does is precisely by combining two unlike genomes, although genomes of the same species and encoding the same basic ideas, yeah. it is a very fertile way to generate diversity. Um, And so what is observed is that while certainly plants can become acellular, they, I mean, asexual, uh, dandelions or whatever, uh, they lose the idea of being sexual and just clone themselves basically, Um, that over the long haul, those species die off because they don't have the same rich sources of uh, recombination uh, that sexual ones do, and therefore 
when the environment changes this uh, asexual pattern that they've adopted, which was very good, and let them thrive in one situation. Since the environment is constantly changing, they don't have the resiliency, the buoyancy to um, go off in a new direction that responds to this change in the environment. So they tend to go extinct. And so with the evolution of sex, uh, something related to it or that came down the line was uh, intimacy and all the emotions associated with it. So uh, what would you say are uh, the importance of it and the importance of sexual selection uh, for the paradigm you present in the book? Okay, well... Intimacy, of course, is something that we, a noun that we use for humans mostly, um, uh, the one that's more, we can generalize more freely is what I call nurture. So mm -hmm. nurture is the uh, effort to take one's offspring, one's, the zygote, the embryo, and protect it so that it matures and the lineage keeps going. And... <clears throat> In plants, this can be seed coats, acorns, so on. In animals, it can be cocoons, um, all sorts of ways of protecting uh, the next generation. And then in many animals, it becomes per a parental investment mm -hmm. so that the newborn is actually fed and uh, nurtured by the parent or other members of the community. And um, so... I mean, you use the term sexual selection, which is a different thing. Do you want to go there? Or, um... uh, yes, yes, please. Talk well, about okay, so there, there is a concept, well, not a concept, but a phenomenon, I think it's quite real, called sexual selection, where um, in the typical case, and I think this only applies to animals, um, the female chooses a mate that she judges to be... <clears throat> particularly fit, if you will, um, by a certain display of behavior that the male produces. Um, birds dance and have fancy feathers, and uh, no. um, <clears throat> the males often fight for each other, fight with each other, and the victor uh, gets the female's praise and peacock tails and all the other things. And so that form of selection has... Even Darwin distinguished that from natural selection, where it's the environment that's choosing which is the better adapted organism. In this case, it's the female who is judging the better adapted. And the sexual traits that she's looking for, uh, bright feathers or strength or big antlers or whatever, um, the idea is that in order to make a big antler or bright colored feathers, you have to be um, robust overall. You have to be in good shape. If you're, if you're a weakling or underfed or ill, uh, you tend to be drab and less fancy, and uh, the female will overlook you because she wants um, her children to be robust. So that's sexual selection. Uh, and, of course, something that we humans worry a lot about and is also something that uh, you find 
different perspectives of across different religions is death. So how do you think we should uh, deal with death or think about death uh, from an evolutionary perspective and uh, how should we deal with it through the paradigm of religious naturalism? Okay, so all organisms, unicellular, multicellular, asexual, sexual, can die. Bacterium, you squirt it with alcohol and it dies. So there's nothing, to my knowledge, there's nothing, no critter that's inherently immortal. Mm-hmm. But there are uh, most unicellular organisms, even ones that are also also sexual, uh, and certainly all asexual organisms, uh, propagate themselves by dividing in two and then dividing in four and dividing into eight and uh, 16. And there is no built-in death into their trajectory. So they don't have to die. Um, And this is not the case for multicellular organisms who are by definition also sexual. Mm -hmm. Um, So the, in the case of the multicellular organism, um, the organism is uh, divided into two domains, if you will. One is the soma, the body, plant's body, or the animal's body. And the mm-hmm. other is called the germline, which are the testis and the ovaries or the yeah. uh, pollen stigma uh, that are generating, uh, their job is to do the next generation. And so one can say that the job of the soma is to... Uh, mature and nourish this germline so that it comes into fruition and forms uh, the next generation. And at that point, the soma is no longer necessary. And there, even though there's a huge difference in how long the soma lasts from, you know, a mayfly where it lasts a few hours uh, to a redwood tree that where it lasts hundreds of years, uh, <clears throat> eventually the soma dies. We don't know of any <clears throat> immortal soma. And that's just because mutations accumulate or they get stuck in a forest fire or something. But, you know, there's a, usually the soma will die in those long-lived ones just because they get old. But, but is there anything within the paradigm of religious naturalism that you think could help us deal with the existential dread usually brought up by the by right. us so, knowing so, that someday uh, we will die so it's it's imagine that a dolphin or a non-human ape may anticipate its death uh they certainly uh lots of animals experience uh behavior that we, I think, correctly can interpret as sorrow when their child dies or, mm-hmm. or a companion dies. Uh, they carry the corpse around for a while as if they care. And uh, yeah. So death can uh, inflict sorrow on large-brained animals. Um, but um, it's, there's no evidence that I know of that they actually anticipate their own death. They very much do everything they can to avoid danger so that they stay alive. But mm-hmm. that's different from 
waking up in the morning and saying, ah, oh, alas, <laughs> I will die, and isn't that a bummer? Um, and so what I offer from a religious naturalist perspective is the fact that because we have this germ-soma dichotomy, this has allowed the soma to evolve in all sorts of ways that unicellular organisms can't do because they're basically a one-man band. They have to take care of everything themselves, whereas these somas can go off in all sorts of directions that are adaptive and photosynthesize and uh, hunt for prey and have digestive systems and all the other things that they have. So the soma in animals includes brains, and in humans, brains are the basis of these eye cells that via language and story, we come to understand that death is an inevitable fate that is part of our lot. And what the religious naturalist suggests is that um, instead of being bummed out about that, we might instead re remind ourselves that if it weren't for this uh, feature of the soma that it generates a brain and a mind, mm -hmm. uh, we wouldn't be having our fear of death. <laughs> There's kind of a paradox there, but uh, it, it's in fact these minds that are mortal that generate our fear of being mortal. And um, we should maybe instead just say, so be it, this is, uh, uh, <clears throat> I'll celebrate the fact that I have a mind for as long as I do. So, uh, we've been talking about some aspects uh, and some steps in, evolution, in evolutionary history and some concepts in evolutionary biology, and I've asked you some questions and how you deal with it through the lens of religious naturalism, but uh, let me ask you uh, directly about religious naturalism itself. So, uh, there's naturalism that is basically the perspective adopted by scientists and uh, evolutionary biologists specifically when tackling uh, questions related to the origins of life, the evolution of life and all of that. But what is religious naturalism exactly? I mean, are, is there, for example, uh, are, or are there some basic tenets of religious naturalism? Uh, how does it work exactly? Okay, well, so first of all, naturalism is a term that, to my knowledge, first shows up in the uh, philosophical uh, intellectual tradition. And in the 19th century, there were philosophers who posited, who called their particular perspective, naturalism, and it mm -hmm. included a very uh, no-nonsense atheism that no. the natural nature is all there is, and there's no supernatural, and that was naturalism, okay? And yes. there are uh, many books written in that context by many philosophers. What I and others are trying to avoid in talking about our perspective is the use of the ism, not only because it 
brings up in Google searches all of these staunch atheistic uh, perspectives, but also because lots of people these days don't like isms. <laughs> they don't want uh, a dogma. That's one of the things that they are running away from in Catholicism or Judaism mm -hmm. or uh, that has uh, things that you're definitely supposed to believe in. Mm -hmm. So we're trying to modify it and call what we're talking about a religious naturalist orientation. Okay. And an orientation is, at least in our cultures, a much more permissive term. One can have a gender orientation. Uh, one can have a um, um, musical preference orientation. I mean, you know, there, there, it's it's a way of framing oneself that doesn't involve dogma. So the religious naturalist orientation um, takes as its core story what we are calling everybody's story, which is the story that I tell in my book and that many others tell in their own language, um, which is Big Bang onwards. So all that we know mm -hmm. about nature, how it first started, uh, to, as back as far as we can go, and how it works in the present tense. And um, so that is everybody's story because it applies not only to all humans, but to all creatures now and since the beginning of life. Um, although they weren't, you know, telling a story is something that is unique to us, but it applies to everyone. So the naturalist a naturalist, a vanilla naturalist, um, would take that story to mind, would, uh, that would be the story that made sense to them. They might also be Christian, they might orient themselves in that story and have that be meaningful to them, but as a naturalist they could just be vanilla. Or they can take this story and ask what's its religious potential? Does it have any merit in being a religious story? So the current religious traditions and all the ones that we know of from past records all have a narrative, all have a story. Mm -hmm. How things came to be, how, why do we die? Um, all of the questions that humans ask are incorporated in a story that tells, gives answers. And... Um, so the question is, if one takes everybody's story, does it have any answers? And that's the exploration that a religious naturalist engages in. And this exploration goes in three different directions, has three axes. One is an interpretive direction. So what does this story tell me <laughs> about the meaning of life, about the meaning of my life? What does it tell me about death, all of those kinds of philosophical intellectual questions. The second is spiritual, which is an inward response. What does this story uh, tell? How, how do I feel about this story? How does it make me feel? Um, and spiritual responses, a list is long, but I would include awe, wonder, reverence, gratitude, mm -hmm. hope, courage, uh, lots, of, lots of internal uh, responses and in the traditions, the spiritual responses are typically elicited by 
art, ritual, ceremony, um, activities that allow us to peer inward. <laughs> mm -hmm. And then the third trajectory is the moral, the ethical, oh, what, what does this story tell me about how to behave? Because I think it's uh, pretty clear that uh, in as culture evolved and as religions evolved and every culture seems to have some sort of a religion that a major point of the religion has been and still is to help people uh, get along with each other to cultivate their social emotions that they inherit from our social lineages um, to be nice and so on. And these uh, moral uh, implications are also lifted up in all of the traditions and so the religious naturalist asks what does everybody's story tell me about my moral trajectory and we go on to include the concept of eco-moral so most of the traditions the indigenous being exceptions to this but most of them are very much concerned about humans interact with each other and then how they interact with their gods and so on. Um, but uh, the religious naturalist, since their story is embedded in the entire planetary matrix, is also very uh, focused on uh, right ways of interacting with other creatures and the planet as a whole. But do you think that uh, since for, at least in the West, of course, for a few centuries there's been a sort of intellectual schism between uh, religious ways of looking at the world and religious practices and perhaps we could say i think religious epistemology and uh, the sciences do you think that for uh, a framework or a paradigm like religious naturalism to work that we would have to reframe or rethink the relationship or the intellectual relationship that we have between religion and science? Well, of course, the historical religions, again, leaving out the pagan indigenous ones, um, right. had were theistic at some level. And, and yeah. in fact, the indigenous ones are as well. They have spirits mm -hmm. and ancestors and stuff who are impacting on human lives. Um, the Since the religious naturalist uh, doesn't have that kind of uh, expectation of how nature is it operates, um, some people argue that therefore the term religious shouldn't even be used for this orientation because they insist that a religious orientation has to include a supernatural component. Mm -hmm. And um, I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> I think one can have all of the experiences of being religious without uh, invoking or including a supernatural component. And therefore, it seems to me like it's a perfectly valid religious tradition. Now, in the past, the major conflicts that we can think of, uh, you know, Copernicus, Galileo, Darwin, uh, all of those guys, the big problems in their cases was that their account of nature differed from the account of nature that was given in the texts and traditions 
of the ongoing uh, <clears throat> religions. So uh, therefore it was heresy uh, to say that uh, humans evolved rather than were created on the sixth day. And so, um, you know, that's, that's kind of a different conflict than, than uh, the question of whether a religious naturalist orientation is even a religion at all. Uh, and when tackling specific <clears throat> questions that usually arise in the religious traditions and also, I think, in religious naturalism, uh, for example, uh, what is the meaning of life? What is the meaning of all of this? Is, is existence or life itself uh, me uh, meaningful or meaningless? I mean, what am I doing here? That, uh, do, does this have any purpose? Th those kinds of questions. If you tackle them from the perspective of religious naturalism, do you get at uh, specific answers or are you just promoting a framework for people to use to deal with those questions and then through the same framework different people might arrive at different answers to those same yeah, questions? Great question and definitely the latter. So. Uh what's the meaning of life, what's the meaning of my life, uh, what's the purpose of my life. Uh, a devout Christian will say that it's to do the will of God or something like that. So that sort right. of punts the question because uh, <laughs> you don't have to, <laughs> you just have to have a good ear so that you happen to be able to hear what God wants, which always strikes me as a bit tricky. But um, there are lots of people who claim that they ran for office, for example, because they had a dream that God told them to uh, lead the Republican Party or whatever, yeah. whatever um, they come up with. Uh, if you don't have those kinds of answers, then uh, the the game is open, and the what we are blessed with, to my mind, is our rich human cultural history, where people have given all sorts of answers to those questions in poetry, in novels, in um, music, uh, in ceremony. We have lots of ways to find meaning in our cultural context. And that's why I'm not happy with the ism part, because all of these meaning systems are out there and speak to different people, because we're all different and all uh, have different emotional and temperamental uh, contexts, and so different suggestions for what's meaningful are uh, important to different people, and that's great. Why not? If, if there isn't any one meaning, then a plurality of meanings and understandings of that concept uh, is, is, is terrific. And how do you think uh, a religious naturalist orientation would relate 
to the <laughs> world, world you can use religious naturalism it's much easier uh, yeah. you know religious naturalist orientation is awful so uh, uh, yeah yeah i mean but i was using your expression <laughs> we, that. we we shorten it to rn okay so rn is uh, oh, okay, okay. So, uh, but you oh, may not okay, okay so let's go with rn then so <laughs> okay. so uh, in what ways do you think rn would relate or what kinds of um, perhaps relationships it would have with traditional religions. Uh, I mean, because uh, for example, if within the framework of naturalism, uh, supernatural elements are excluded from the picture, but within religious traditions, those are all there and are usually fundamental would there be any conflict there or are you accommodating of those perspectives coming from traditional well, religiosity there's, there's a there's a big middle ground here right so okay. uh if you're in the abrahamic traditions and that you believe that god created the earth and the human um or if you're a religious naturalist and you say that you don't know how it started, but here it is, and we're all in the present, on the planet, we all agree on that, even though we have different stories as to how it showed up. Um, that in no way means that, that we have nothing to talk about. Mm -hmm. And in fact, at least in, in America, I don't know um, how much this has permeated um, the churches, temples, etc., in other countries, but I think it has. Um, there's a there's a greening. There there are, you know, committees and task for task forces in all sorts of Protestant, Catholic, and Jewish um, buildings where people go out and clean up the river and um, work to promote uh, the Cutting, not cutting down of trees and all, all sorts of ecological frames that are actively going on in within the traditions. And if you say that you're doing it because this is all sacred because it's God cre God's creation, or if you say it's sacred because it's all we got, um, you can still think of it as sacred and still work to preserve and restore it. So it doesn't necessarily, there doesn't necessarily need to be a conflict. And some religious naturalists do use God language. They just like God language. So we have pantheism. We have uh, God is the uh, uh, creativity. I mean, there are all sorts of ideas for how to use God, uh, the God term in one's religious meaning frame. I, I don't happen to do that, but lots of people do. Yes, uh, I was just trying to understand, I mean, if when it came to those other more traditional religious perspectives, if uh, the kind of attitude a religious naturalist would have toward them would be similar to uh, some of the attitudes coming from uh, uh, anti-theist 
atheists where they oh, are, but, tend to be exclusionary. Dawkins, yeah, the, yeah. the Richard Dawkins and <laughs> Sam Harris. And, yeah, so, uh, so the Richard Dawkins school, um, it's fine, you know, uh, lots of people who call themselves humanists or, and Richard Dawkins calls himself a humanist. And mm -hmm. so there's that whole line of uh, thinking and writing that mm -hmm. basically is trying to convince people that a theistic, supernaturally oriented uh, faith is stupid. And, you know, uh, anybody who uh, thinks along those lines is um, some sort of pariah. Um, the religious naturalists see these faith traditions as part of nature. I mean, you know, they're not <laughs> the belief system includes a non-natural part but you know catholicism let's take for example has been going on for thousands of years it's created incredible architecture and literature and paintings uh it's uh, a beautiful tradition uh, i love going to mass i just love hearing it it's it's gorgeous and to be offended by it just because there are things about it that don't jibe with the way i've worked things out is um i think sad uh, <laughs> and and it might be said that uh, there was an interview with richard dawkins where he was asked what five things would he take on a desert island if he were marooned and uh one of them was a recording of uh box b minor mass and so the interviewer said you know how could that be it's all about god and everything and he said yeah but it's beautiful <laughs> <laughs> I love listening to it. So even Richard Dawkins can be a heretic. <laughs> <laughs> right. <Humanism. laughs> right. So um, a few minutes ago, when I asked you about what religious, nat religious naturalism really is, you mentioned uh, a moral dimension to it, and you mentioned something like eco-morality, for example. So... In what ways can religious naturalism orient, uh, orient us ethically or morally? And I mean, what kinds of moral questions do you think it could help us answer? So, if we leave out eco-morality, because eco-morality is basically an extension of morality. Okay. So, okay. the first job, if you will, is to figure out how to be nice to your mother and <laughs> your <laughs> siblings and uh, uh, the people in your community. And then <clears throat> those same uh, understandings can uh, readily permeate, uh, not readily, but uh, are called to be, to permeate to other beings as well. Um, so what's really important to remember in terms of our morality is not, that it came from a stone tablet and God writing Ten Commandments or something like that. We come from a social lineage, the primate lineage, and the primates, uh, modern primates, and presumably the original primates, um, part of their way of being is to form troops, to help one another, to hunt together, um, to gather fruit together, to... Um, protect one another against predators there's this social thing is absolutely 
baked in and it is presumably therefore baked into us and it's not like it suddenly got put in a trash bin when humans came along um so we have those um we have those instincts if you will um but they don't come to us instinctively they don't come to us the way you know laughter is universal they come to us as um as predispositions that are then developed and they're developed in the context of the other thing that is developing at the same time which is this i self this sense of me and uh what i want and need and um that is often in conflict with the needs and wants of others and so there is therefore a an adjudication that is constantly evolve, uh, involved in any moral quest and but one can identify looking in at our cultural history of the kinds of attitudes that cultures seek to encourage and develop in one's moral maturation and these include compassion and they include reverence whether it's reverence for parents or reverence for leaders um and it includes courage to act on one's convictions these lists of traits um philosophers usually call them virtues even though the term virtue has gotten messed up <laughs> means uh that you don't engage in sex or something but um it it uh can be i think a very potent word and i'm i'm happy to use it and so as we mature uh as humans we are encouraged to nourish and develop and promote the our virtues and uh it's a lifelong process because they're always in conflict with our self interest mhm and about the more spiritual side of things and some uh, spiritual experiences like the ones we frequently see among religious people related to awe and other emotions like that um, since we're talking about looking at things through a scientific lens here when it comes to understanding the universe life etc Uh, in what ways do you think uh, sci- uh, do you think science can elicit a religious like response from people by telling us how nature works i mean if we start with awe <laughs> there's nothing more awe inspiring to me than these images coming back from the web telescope i mean hello uh how can you uh be more gobsmacked than realizing the context in which we live i mean it makes some people feel uncomfortable let's uh, let's be real but uh for me i i just go hoo hoo uh and uh, and quite as much as i mean uh, infinitely more so let me amend that much more so than i'm in awe of the fact that there's a story that jesus turned water into wine or that uh even the god created everything in 6 days or whatever um supernatural source of awe is offered up by the traditions the science is offering up 
stuff that that just blows my mind. Um, um, so, and then the other spiritual experiences that we can um, evaluate on the same axis would be uh, a spiritual experience that we call gratitude, where in a monotheistic tradition, one is grateful to God, right, and offers prayers of gratitude. But uh, I am deeply gra grateful for all of the critters that came before me that figured stuff out so that uh, I have the life that I live. Um, and uh, I'm grateful for all of the resources that come to me in the terms of food and shelter and stuff that the planet offers uh, that allows me to have uh, the protection and uh, nourishment that I get. So gratitude is easy. Um, reverence is easy in that the evolutionary story tells us how small a part we are in the immense whole and how uh, instead of feeling like we're the big deal and the only thing that's important, um, reverence for all of life and all of nature and the planet as a whole, um, it's kind of hard to feel reverent about a galaxy, but I guess one could. But certainly uh, one's immediate context, there are plenty of ways to uh, be reverent given science-based understandings. So I, I, you know, um, an example I use is that one can go out and look at the sunset and one can see how beautiful it is and the colors and feel awe and reverence and gratitude or one can think about all of the nuclear fusions that are going on and uh, all the heat that's being generated and feel awe at that or one can be grateful to the sun for providing light so that plants can photosynthesize so that we have oxygen. And I mean, you know, there are all sorts of ways to combine our scientific understandings to generate spiritual experience in my mind. And many poets have done this. I mean, Mary Oliver, an example who talks about uh, how critters are and then offers them in her beautiful language, um, uh, reverent and reverence and gratitude. Okay, so uh, related to that, uh, one last question then. So, because uh, I'm not sure perhaps to a great extent this is a matter of a temperament of or personality and that's the reason why by thinking through things uh, with the same perspective in mind or the using the scientific uh, or using science, uh, people look at things differently. But uh, because there are uh, people, uh, scientists or people that are, uh, that inform themselves a lot on science that uh, are or become nihilistic, do you think that that has something to do with the scientific approach itself with the way we look at reality through the lens of science or perhaps it is mostly a matter of how people interpret the knowledge we get from science i think i believe that nihilism has deep roots there we can probably uh i'm, I'm not a philosopher but i'm sure that any philosopher could give you a long list of nihilists who showed up well before our scientific understandings of nature um, had any particular effect. Um, and right. uh, so 
I think that if one takes in our these understandings and remains a nihilist um, and is gloomy and grumpy throughout their lives, then there it is. I, I wish them well, but uh, I hope that uh, the kinds of responses that we religious naturalists are coming up with, and of course, poets and uh, artists and so on have been celebrating nature for years, um, that, uh, for, for eons, <laughs> uh, millennia anyway, um, while the cave painters were celebrating uh, nature on the walls of their caves and presumably uh, getting off on going in those caves and, and having rituals in response to them. Um, I think that while there are nihilists, I don't think they're the, they're the rule. I think they're around and they, um, your grumpy uncle <laughs> or something who says bah humbug. But I think I, I see a lot of optimism in humans and I think we're looking for answers that do allow us to be moral and to have spiritual experience. Great. So uh, the book is, again, The Sacred, uh, Sacred Depths of Nature, How Life Has Emerged and Evolved. And uh, we're talking about the second edition here. I'm leaving a link to it in the description box of Great. this interview. Could you, could you also uh, leave uh, the URL for this little association that we've set up? Um, it's called the Religious Naturalist Association. Mm -hmm. uh, of course. That has a lot of it's it's uh it's got lots of you know bibliographies and all sorts of stuff on it that uh people might like to explore so the url is www.religious-naturalist-association.org <laughs> Uh, and by the way, related to that, because I, uh, now that we're wrapping the interview up, I was about to ask you that. So through the website or through some other means, if someone is interested in perhaps joining the association or becoming a religious naturalist, can they get some information about it there? Yes. So the web, you can join as a member. It's free. Mm -hmm. um, or you can read a lot about it there or in my book or in other books that are lifted up on the website and decide whether this describes you or it's something you want to at least explore and see where it leads. Yeah. So both, both sources are very important. Okay. So I'm also adding the link to the religious naturalist association to the description box of this interview, Dr. Good enough. And thank you thank so you. much. Again, for taking the time. You, you got through all those questions, even though I didn't think you could. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so thank you again for your time. It's sure. been a pleasure. Hi, guys. Thank you for watching the interview until the end. Please do not forget to share the video, subscribe to the channel, and also leave a like. And if you like what I'm doing, please consider supporting the show on Patreon or PayPal. You can find the links in the description box of the interview. This show is brought to you by Enlights Learning and Development Done Differently. Check their website at enlights.com. 
I would also like to give a huge thank you to my main patrons and PayPal supporters, Perga Larson, Jerry Mueller, Hans Frederick Sunda, Bernardo Seixas, Olaf Alex, Jonathan Visser, Adam Castle, Matthew Whitting, Bernardo Wolf, Tim Hollacy, Eric Alenia, John Connors, Philip Force Connolly, Robert Windager, Rui Inácio, Zup, Marco Neves, Colin Holbrook, Simon Columbus, Phil Kavanagh, Michael Stormir, Samuel Andrea, Francis Ford, Tiago Nunes, Alexander Dunbauer, Fergal Cusson, Hal Herzog, Nuno Machado, Jonathan Leibrandt, João Linhares, Stanton T, Samuel Correa, Eric Hines, Mark Smith, João Weira, Tom Hamel, Sardas France, David Sloan Wilson, Yassila Dez Araújo, Romain Roach, Diego Londonio Correa, Yannick Punter, Adana Rosmani, Charlotte Bliss, Nicole Barbaro, Adam Hunt, Pavel Ostazewski, Nelek Bach, Guy Madison, Gary G. Elman, Simon Afzal, Adrian Yegi, Nick Golden, Paul Tolentino, João Barbosa, Julian Price, Edward Hall, Edin Bronner, Douglas Fry, Franca Bortolotti, Gabriel Panos Cortez, Ursula Litzke, Scott, Zachary Fish, Tim Duffy, Sunny Smith, John Wisman, Morten Eichland, Dr. Bird, Daniel Friedman, William Buckner, Mau Maria, Paul George Arnaud, Luke Loaki, Jorge Steofanos, Chris Williamson, Peter Wolosin, David Williams, Ruth Towell, Diogo Costa, Anton Erickson, Charles Murray, Alex Shaw, Amari Martinez, Coralie Chevalier, Pedro Bonilla, Ziegler, Bangalore Atheists, Larry D. Lee Jr., Old Herringbone, Sterry, Michael Bailey, Dan Sperber, Robert Gracies, Tom Roth, DRPMD, Igor N., Jeff McMahon, Jake Zul, Bernabas Radix, Mark Campbell, Richard Bowen, Thomas Dobner, Luke Neeson, Chris Story and Manuel Oliveira. A special thanks to my producers, Isar Webb, Jim Frank, Lucas Tafiniak, Tom Venegdam, Bernard Ugni, Curtis Dixon, Benedict Mueller, Vega Giddy, Thomas Turnbull, Catherine and Patrick Tobin, John Carlo Montenegro, Robert Lewis and Al Nick Ortiz, and to my executive producers, Matthew Lavender, Sergio Codrian and Bogdan Canivets. Thank you for all.